Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with a panel of experts in marine science and conservation to answer one of your questions about sharks and the oceans. This episode is going to be our last episode of season one uh, and our last episode of 2021. So it makes complete sense to take a deep dive into one of the biggest and most talked about subjects of recent times, climate change. This is a very topical issue given that the UN Climate Change Conference, COP26, wrapped up only a few weeks ago. And a lot of you have asked us questions about the climate crisis and its potential impact on sharks rays and other marine life. So that is what we are going to be covering today. And the amazing experts who are going to help us address such an immense and complex topic are phenomenal marine scientists and fish physiologists, Dr Jodie Rummer and PhD candidate Carolyn Wheeler. They are both based at the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University in Australia and spend their free time diving the Great Barrier Reef and hanging out with epaulette sharks, who we will meet a little bit later on in this podcast. Jodie is an associate professor with an extensive career studying the effects of climate change and other human-driven problems on a variety of coral reef fishes, including sharks and rays. She has received several accolades for her research and outreach and in 2016 was named one of Australia's top five scientists under the age of 40. Jodie also runs the Rummer Lab and the PhysioShark Project, which aims to investigate how climate change impacts the physiology of newborn and juvenile reef sharks in French Polynesia. Carolyn has an honours degree from the University of New England, where she conducted physiological research on sturgeon and a host of shark and skate species, and she is now coming to the end of a PhD studying the effects of thermal stress on the development and physiological performance of epaulette shark embryos and hatchlings. She was awarded a graduate fellowship through the American Australian Association and a small grant from the Save Our Seas Foundation to continue her research at JCU, assessing the impacts of thermal stress on epaulette shark reproduction. This is such a fascinating and at times sobering episode. We break down climate change and the different aspects of it, such as ocean acidification, deoxygenation and warming. Uh, and we also learn how Jodie and Carolyn study the responses of sharks to these stresses and the quite shocking outcomes of their research, as well as what it means for other species around the world. Now, I know that when we talk about climate change, it can feel quite overwhelming and can leave us feeling a little bit despondent. So although this episode talks about the severity of the issue, we also discuss how much power we as individuals have to change the situation and look forward to 2022 with an optimistic mindset. I loved recording this episode so much. I loved learning from Jodie and Carolyn about the incredible work that they do and I really hope you enjoy listening to it and get lots from it. So without further ado, let's dive into our episode. Yeah, cool. Yes, we'll definitely get to know the epaulette shark. A little bit later on and I'm really excited to get to know them better because Jodie you tagged me in 
an amazing video on Instagram um, of a very sweet little epaulette shark just resting his head on a, was it a little clump of seaweed? It's kind of dark green seaweed that I could see. Yeah. But I mean, do they do that often? Well, it's funny you call that a little epaulette shark because that was actually one of the biggest ones we've ever seen in the wild. <laughs> and we were very excited to see this big male out when we were snorkeling. And yeah, Carolyn couldn't have been more excited. I could hear her <laughs> exclaiming, you know, from, from where I was snorkeling. And so it was great that we got to see this this large adult male. I mean, they maybe get to at most a meter long and that's wow. including their very long tail. So not a really big shark. And mm -hmm. usually they're hiding, especially during the daytime. So we were pretty lucky to, to see this big male just perching his little face above this fluffy green algae and then he scurried away pretty quickly so um it's it's pretty lucky that we got to have that that moment with him yeah but they're they're so beautiful and um, like the markings on them are absolutely gorgeous um but just just for reference i do work with baskin sharks and so my idea of what is a big shark and what is a little shark is a bit skewed <laughs> um but yeah such a beautiful video I'm so excited to hear more about epaulette sharks um, a little bit later on. But before we get on to them, um, I do have a question that we ask every single guest on this podcast. Um, I have been told it's a very difficult one to answer. Um, and it is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? So Carolyn, we'll start with yours. Yeah, this is a tricky question. <laughs> I think I've been super lucky um, I've been in research now for about 10 years, so I've had a lot of really cool experiences with basking sharks and poor eagles and blue sharks and makos. So this was, I had to really think about this. I actually think though my most memorable experience is not with a shark at all, it's with sturgeon. Um, so I did my honors thesis with sturgeon during undergrad and probably within my first month working in research in my fir very first year of uni, um, I went out on a sturgeon collection trip to do some catch and release work. And we caught, I think maybe 12 in the course of 15 minutes. And we caught some just really massive five, six foot fish. Um, and I think that was probably, yeah, a very memorable experience. That was my first time doing any sort of fish biology. It was my first field trip. Um, and it's also a endangered or threatened species. So, um, Mm. Yes, super memorable. Very good way to start off a career in fish biology, I would say. Yeah, definitely. And like like you said, they, they're big fish, right? Yes. Yeah, they can get up to, uh, the biggest one I've seen was about six feet. So about the size of me. It's like a maybe 200 centimeters or so. Yes. Wow. Uh, very like old yeah. prehistoric dinosaur type fish. Um, yeah, super, super cool. Oh, amazing. That's a really good one. Jodie, how about you? First time for me seeing a tiger shark in the wild was pretty memorable. Um, just uh, this is a really famous spot mm -hmm. off of the coast of Tahiti called Valley Blanche. And uh, my colleagues have tagged maybe 55, 60 tiger sharks, mostly females because they stick around. The males kind of wander off and do whatever um, over the course of years. 
but mostly females ranging three and a half to four and a half meters or so and just the sheer size and how calm they seem but at the same time they're so big and so that was an interesting contrast to to observe the the stark um size of them but then watching them slowly moving and realizing that they are quite calm and quite curious and of course getting close and seeing that incredible color patterning you know really I guess I'm emulating their namesake as being the tiger shark so that definitely would be up there but I've got to say I try not to take for granted any underwater experience I have I'm constantly finding something beautiful and interesting and quirky and weird underwater and trying not to take for granted that we have this incredible opportunity presented to us all all the time almost i'm going to move us on to our main topic which is climate change and its impact on sharks now we've had a lot of questions from our audience about climate change, you know, maybe mainly asking how it affects sharks, but also very specific aspects of climate change. So ocean acidification, uh, warming seas. And I thought we could kind of really start by breaking those concepts down because we do get, we do hear a lot of these phrases and, and terms kind of thrown around in the scientific literature and also kind of in the media as well. And so I thought we could go right back to the basics and talk about what climate change actually is. Um, so I don't know who who wants to take this one. It's quite quite a big question, but in in base in basic in basic terms, how would you describe climate change? Well, um, I guess I could I could take it for a couple minutes and then maybe pass the ball to Carolyn. Um, I would say in basic terms, climate change is the ongoing result of increased greenhouse gas emissions, which would include carbon dioxide, methane, et cetera, that are going into the atmosphere, that are coming from human sources. So the burning of fossil fuels, deforestation, cement production, et cetera. Those emissions are going into the atmosphere and staying in the atmosphere. And that's creating kind of like a blanket on the planet. And that's what's warming the planet. Now, the oceans are absorbing a lot of that heat from that blanket. And that's what's happening when the oceans are warming. The oceans are also absorbing about a third of the carbon dioxide of those greenhouse gas emissions. And that's a biochemical process that happens in the oceans that we're really familiar with. Like, this is one of the most basic textbook biochemical reactions that happens when CO2 and water come in contact with one another. And in the ocean, that results in a decrease in pH. Now we hear things like pH balance and you know stuff in with health products and maybe deodorant and cosmetics, pH balance. Well, pH is really important for all of life. And what's happening in the oceans right now is that that ph is decreasing to the point where all of the salts all of the ions in the oceans are not able to protect it anymore they're not able to buffer that ph 
so that pH is decreasing. And when that pH decreases, all the organisms in that environment have to do extra work to compensate their own body pH to respond to that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so those are two things, ocean warming and ocean acidification. So extra energy to compensate for that decrease in pH. And then with ocean warming, most organisms in the ocean will also respond biochemically to increased temperatures. So increased temperatures will increase the rate of all kinds of functions that are happening in the body. And that costs more energy as well. Now, an organism can try to acclimate or adjust its body to try to slow things back down, but that costs a lot, a lot of energy. So those two things, for sure, are happening because of this blanket that is happening with the atmosphere due to these greenhouse gas emissions. And in addition to that, sort of the third climate change stressor that we talk quite a bit about is ocean deoxygenation or hypoxia zones, hypoxia meaning low oxygen. Um, some very famous ones are happening off of um, river deltas, say the Mississippi River in the United States, where a lot of nutrients are going into the, the ocean due to um, farm runoff, yeah, agricultural runoff, industrial runoff, all of those nutrients are feeding lots of bacteria and lots of algae that's almost suffocating all of the other life in that area and decreasing that area's oxygen. So that's happening coastally, but then we're also getting low oxygen zones that are happening out in the open ocean as well. And that's a result of all these other factors that are related to climate change that are altering the way water is mixing with itself and therefore the layers of water can't mix properly and therefore can't oxygenate all the different layers of water. So we are seeing low oxygen zones in the middle of the ocean as well. So in summary, three major threats that are coming with climate change in, in, with respect to the oceans, that would be ocean warming, ocean acidification or the decrease in the ocean's pH, and ocean deoxygenation or low oxygen levels in, in the water, um, all of which are directly related to an increase in greenhouse gas emissions that we see um, quantitatively or on graphs from the industrial revolution to the current day, very, very much so in the past two decades. Yeah, yeah, because that that brings me on quite nicely to a question that we did have from a listener who asked, you know, can climate change occur naturally? Um, and I think the point that you just made there, um, I, well, I mean, I'll, I'll let you guys answer this, but, you know, we can have natural climate change, like the, the climate is changing all the time across geological time. But the climate change that we're discussing now is is something quite different. So can can you explain the difference between that? Well, no, that's that is really interesting. I think when we are looking at a geological time scale, which is something that Carolyn and I talk a lot about when we're thinking about the evolution of these quirky shark species that we study. Sharks have over 450 <laughs> million years of evolutionary history, so they've survived 
lots of warming and cooling periods, lots of times during which the atmosphere and therefore the, the ocean's carbon dioxide levels would be much higher than they are today, um, decreases in the ocean's oxygen levels. So a lot of massive changes, but that's over 450 million years. And what's different today is the rate at which these parameters are changing in the oceans and in the atmosphere and environment in general, really. The rate that's, that's quite fast and it's compounded by a lot of other stressors that these organisms are experiencing. So that's where we have that big difference between changes, um, climatic changes over geological time scale, where we're looking at tens, even hundreds of millions of years versus the past two centuries, but more so the past two decades, really. And to, to add to that, like sharks and their relatives have relatively long generation times. So for their ability to adapt or evolve over a few decades, it's pretty limited just because they take a long time to reach sexual maturity and they have long reproductive cycles and they grow slowly. So they're not going to be able to keep pace probably with the changes, unlike in their past evolutionary kind of history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're extremely vulnerable. Um, and of course, when we're talking about, you know, the last couple of centuries or the, you know, even the last couple of decades, the sort of major factor here that wasn't there before is unfortunately, you know, us, you know, the reason that greenhouse gas emissions are increasing is because of human activity. Um, and so quite often you hear the term human induced climate change as well to sort of distinguish it from those sort of, um, you know, the very... Uh, long-term ge geological changes that, that we're talking about. Um, but speaking of sharks, I thought it would be quite a good place to introduce the species that you guys both work with. Um, so because we sort of talked about the epaulette shark earlier, um, I wanted to ask just a little bit about the epaulette shark as a species. So Carolyn, do you want to tell us a little bit about, about them? Yeah, sure. So the epaulette shark is a small kind of bottom dwelling shark that's endemic to the Great Barrier Reef. So it's only found on the Great Barrier Reef that we know of. Um, as Jody said earlier, they really only get up to maybe a meter in length when they're really big mature adults. Um, they're also an egg laying species. So from some of the work we've been doing in the lab and just some of the previous knowledge of the species, they lay a couple of eggs every two to three weeks, depending on the individual. Mm -hmm. um, and so they hatch really small, somewhere like 15 to 25 centimeters. Um, they're an interesting little shark because they have a really amazing uh, couple of adaptations. The first is that they can essentially live without oxygen for about four hours. Um, they have some really crazy hypoxia tolerances. Um, and we think it's because wow. of the environment that they're found in, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, they live on these, in, in many parts of the Great Barrier Reef, they live on these uh, reef flats that can be very isolated when the tide goes out. And so, mm -hmm. especially at night, um, the oxygen can get rather low, but that does not seem to bother them too much. Yeah, which is really interesting. Um, and also Four kind of hours. paired with that. Yeah, very, very long periods of time. And they also can um, effectively live out of the water for short periods of time as well. Um, they have modified pectoral and pelvic fins that they use to essentially walk and kind of dig around in their environment. Um, 
Yeah, so Jody and I like to call them their little like cavers almost. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they're just a super interesting, tough little shark um, that we yeah. uh, do lots of research on. Yeah. Oh, they're amazing. Yeah, I, I must confess, like I didn't know much about the epaulette shark until I started kind of looking into the research for this episode. And they are amazing little sharks. I can say little shark now. I'll make sure that I think. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, and I mean, just while we're on the subject, um, so I've seen epaulette sharks referred to as bioindicators. Um, and I wondered if you could kind of explain what is meant by that. Yeah, because they have, well, for a few reasons, they're a really good lab animal for us to work with. Um, they're probably one of the most popular sharks you'd see in public aquaria worldwide because they don't need a, you know, a huge amount of space. They reproduce in captivity. Um, so they're really great in that aspect. And so for us as scientists, they're also really great for lab work. We can keep them and do these kind of climate change experiments, which we'll talk about and kind of manipulate what they're experiencing and see how they respond. Um, yeah, so that's why we kind of are trying to think about how do we use epaulette sharks that are to date already pretty well studied um, to think about, you know, this really hardy, tough shark is having a hard time with some aspects of climate change. What does that mean for other sharks that maybe have, you know, similar characteristics? So maybe egg laying or tropical species, um, because it's, it's really difficult to study climate change effects on big sharks, at least directly, right? We can't yeah. put a bunch of tiger sharks in the lab and raise the temperature <laughs> and see what happens to them, you know? So quite they're kind of yeah. good at that. Yeah, they're good in that aspect. Yeah. Yeah, no, those are those are really good points, Carolyn, um, that, you know, about of the 1,200, roughly 1,200 species of sharks and their relatives, about 40% of them are data deficient. So there are so many species that we know nothing about and can't really study very easily either. Um, either they're hard to find or hard to keep in captivity, as Carolyn mentioned, um, lots of different reasons why we wouldn't logistically be able to study a lot of shark species. Also, of all of the sharks and their relatives, about 40% of them are egg layers. So could the epaulette shark tell us a little bit more about some of these other egg laying species or some other tropical species? By and large, we think the tropical species are going to be the most vulnerable to climate change stressors anyway, because they are typically adapted to very narrow thermal conditions in the tropics. They're not getting massive seasonal changes in their environmental conditions like they would if they were living in more temperate, higher latitude conditions. So just to summarize and reiterate what Carolyn said, you know, this species can tell us a little bit more about other egg layers, a little bit more about other tropical species. And if they're having a hard time hacking it, wow, then that's a big warning sign for other shark species. Yeah, kind of like the alarm going off. So almost like a canary in a mine, right? So, you know, if the canary is smelling something funny is going on, that means that you should you should get out. So pretty much the same with the epaulette shark as well. Yeah. And and Jody, you, you work with some other species as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about about those species as well? I do work with some other species of sharks, other species of bony fishes as well. With my team, it's great to be able to work with awesome fish and shark species, but we do 
really choose the species and even the life stages of the different species we work with to best help us answer the questions we have. And if I can take you on a little journey to French Polynesia, which is our other main field site, (laughs) everyone imagine um, we're touching down in Tahiti. It's, you know, lush green mountains, the most beautiful turquoise waters. Maybe it's also humpback whale season and a lot of beautiful reef sharks, including tiger sharks. But the two reef sharks that we study there are the black tip reef shark and the sicklefin lemon shark. Now, the reason that we're studying those two species is because of their life stage. So we, we do a bit of a rewind there and we look at newborns of those two reef shark species. Not only because newborns, they have a lot going on. Um, They have to learn how to be a shark. They have to learn how to not get eaten, learn how to be, to find food. They have to grow really fast. And, but also we have a a really great collaboration with French laboratory on the island of Morea, which is just about 40 minute ferry ride off of the coast of Tahiti where we, over the past nine years now, have identified 10 different nursery areas around this island where we also know a discrete period of time every single year where mothers are going to give birth to both of these species of reef sharks. And those species of reef sharks as newborns are going to hang out in the shallow lagoons and shallow mangroves at those 10 nursery sites around that island for a few months. And so we can study them pretty readily, both in the field and there at the laboratory as well, if we want to do some of these controlled laboratory experiments. So kind of getting back to choosing the right species or choosing the right life stage to ask and answer, hopefully, the questions that we have. Well, here is a vulnerable life stage, a newborn. Okay, so the really, really early life stages, as I mentioned, have a lot going on. And they're living in, okay, we call it a nursery, but it's really shallow. It's, you know, changing in temperature, changing in oxygen, changing in pH. And they have to cope with those conditions. So not only are they trying to grow, trying to learn how to be a shark, but also having to cope with these challenging environmental conditions. So that can give us a lot of information on the importance of those traits early in life in this, in these little nursery habitats. Yeah, definitely. Cause life is tough for a baby shark. Absolutely. Life is tough for a baby shark. And you know, the two causes of mortality would be starvation or predation. So if they're not hiding out in these really shallow habitats that, Yeah, they're challenging environmentally, but these shallow habitats preclude the big tiger sharks, the big other reef sharks, the adults from getting in there and Mm -hmm. eating them. So they kind of have to do it. But then there's also the question is, is there enough food supply in these shallow habitats as well for them to grow fast enough to get big enough? to go out onto the reef when they have to and be able to kind of hold their own. And that's changing with climate change as Mm. well. So these these 
supposedly nutrient-rich nursery areas are not so nutrient-rich anymore. So when I say these are nurseries, uh, not really. I wouldn't send my children there. Let's just put yeah, it that way. In a, in a very loose sense of the word. <laughs> Kind of the kind of the least dangerous place in <laughs> a very big dangerous place. It's all relative. Yeah. <laughs> it's all relative. Yes. Um. So let's talk a little bit about how how we can test for the impacts of climate change on these shocks. So I imagine you've got a lot of different methodologies to do this. Um, but if you could kind of give give the listeners a sort of like 101 of, of what your research entails. Yeah, I'll talk about it in, in the context of epaulette sharks, because they are, I think, one of the most, if not the most studied species in terms of a climate change context. Um, so Jody's lab for the past 10 years or so has been looking at mainly ocean acidification and ocean warming effects on epaulette sharks. Um, so to start with the ocean acidification, essentially what you do is you can expose animals to these predicted future conditions in the laboratory for a certain amount of time. And then you can measure you know, responses, whether that's something physiological, like changes in their metabolic rate or maybe changes in their growth or in their hatching condition. So with acidification, um, mostly in the adults, there's not really huge effects on them. Um, really all, all that's been seen is that there's maybe some buffering going on internally to that low pH, which is pretty much as expected, but the metabolic rates don't change. So that's just their overall energetic costs. So they seem to be compensating for it okay. And perhaps not surprising because they do live in environments where they experience such drastic change in uh, CO2 and pH. So that's, that's a good sign. Um, we've also raised some egg cases in these low um, kind of acidification scenarios, and that by and large also doesn't have huge effects on them. So good news on that front, acidification alone for epaulette sharks at least doesn't seem to have too much of an effect. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, my PhD looks at temperature. And so I look at how temperature kind of regulates epaulette sharks life history under current day scenarios, but then also thinking about how is that going to change over the next 50 to 100 years. Mm -hmm. And so we found when I was working in Boston at the New England Aquarium, we found that raising the embryos so within the egg cases under these high temperatures had some pretty drastic effects. Um, the highest temperature treatment we did was 31 degrees C, which is a plus four degrees Celsius um, treatment, which would be perhaps in the year 2100 kind of right. range if climate change continues as predicted. Right. Um, and so that had some big effects. The sharks were hatching way faster, which was as expected, they developed more quickly in warmer water. They were hatching at smaller size, so their mass was a bit lower. Mm. Um, and probably one of the most interesting things we saw was that they were really hungry at hatching so right. when they're in the yolk, when they're in the egg, they have this yolk that they are connected to, and that's where they're getting their energy for all of this growth across the four months or so of development. Um, but when they hatch, they have a bit of this yolk still left in their stomach, in their digestive tract, and their spiral valve intestine. And that is supposed to be like a little bit of an energy store to maybe help them 
transition from being in the egg case to being out in the environment because mm-hmm. they, you know, initially really when they hatch, they just hide they don't really go out and look for food perhaps. So it's supposed to help them ease into this environment. Um, but we found that in the 31 degrees Celsius treatments, that they were eating within a day or two, right. which indicates that that reserve might've been gone. They were just using it up so quickly during their growth and development that they had to go out and look for food immediately. Um, so that's a bit concerning because the, the more you have to go out and forage for food, the more likely you are to be snatched up by something bigger coming along. Mm. Um, so that was really interesting finding. Um, some of Jody's work before I was in the lab also noticed that at 32 degrees Celsius, so just one degree warmer, that their spot patterns didn't develop correctly. So right. epaulette sharks have kind of when they're born, these alternating white and brown bands and lots of spots and then two big epaulette spots right by basically behind their gill mm-hmm. um, and we think those are perhaps eye spots similar to like a butterfly to make them look bigger than they are yeah um, but what we found is that their spots were more of like a brown smudge than an actual round black circle at those high temperatures and that even when we brought them down to cooler temperatures it didn't develop. Um, so that could be some sort of indication that they might not be able to camouflage on the reef as well if they don't have the correct patterns and markings, which is really cool and a bit concerning. Mm. Um, and then moving into the adults, I also work on kind of the other end of the spectrum. We've looked at, okay, how vulnerable are the babies? Because that's obviously, like Jody said, a very vulnerable life stage. They're trying to grow, develop, they might not have all of their organs, you know, fully functioning at that point. So they're very vulnerable. But the other life stage we think is also very vulnerable to environmental change would be reproducing adults. Mm-hmm. So they're putting a lot of energy into producing gametes and producing eggs at the end of the cycle. And that is probably a, a fairly large energetic cost for them. And so they might not have, you know, leftover energy to kind of deal with warmer temperatures or some sort of ocean acidification scenario. Um, So that's the kind of the work I'm finishing up now. And what we've seen so far is that when you bump the temperature up by about three degrees, that their egg laying becomes more sporadic. Um, They lay more empty egg cases. So Mm -hmm. egg cases that wouldn't develop into um, an actual baby um, or they just stop laying altogether. So very interesting what we've been seeing so far. Uh, Definitely concerning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on the one hand, really fascinating what you're finding out, but on the other hand, very worrying because there's quite a lot of knock-on effects there. Um, Because I mean, when people talk about climate change and you hear about the oceans warming, I think a lot of people think about how sharks are going to move around the world and and don't think so much about how it's going to impact their physiology and how it's going to impact reproduction as well. Um, so yeah, that's that's super interesting. And then, you know, you say the epaulette shark is kind of right at the the fringes of what sharks can cope with. It's a quite hardy, you know, hardy little shark. So so what does that what does that maybe suggest for for other shark species? Yeah, it's it's concerning, especially yeah. So epaulette sharks are a tropical species, so they're already kind of living, especially in the summer here, at the very top end of what they really tolerate temperature-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you were mentioning, you know, with climate change, we just 
maybe think, oh, well, the sharks will just kind of move to where there's better habitat, the right temperature, et cetera. But for small sharks, like epaulette sharks and most of the egg layers, for the most part, they're not big, like migratory species. Epaulette sharks live on isolated reef flats. So we don't even know if they move between reef flats, probably not much. So I think the likelihood of them thinking, oh, well, it's too warm, I'm just gonna go somewhere else. It's probably unlikely. I think what will happen is they'll just contract their range onto the areas where they're going to survive, which in the case of the Great Barrier Reef would probably be the southern end. It's farther away from the equator. Mm -hmm. um, and they will just kind of start to dwindle out in the areas where it gets too warm. So yeah, it probably has a lot of you know, application to other egg-laying tropical species on the Great Barrier Reef or in other tropical reef areas, for sure. That um, kind of feeds into sort of the three options that we think about when we're doing our research and the three responses that sharks, other organisms might have um, with these stressors like climate change. And in the bare basics, it comes down to adapt, move, or die. And we talked a little bit about adaptation earlier. So changes at the level of the DNA that happen over generations mm -hmm. that allow that organism to cope with changes in their environment. So a really simple de definition there, but that has to happen over generations. So if the organism is getting signals from its environment that it needs to make changes that can happen over those generations, okay, if they have a fast generation time, um, you know, even just comparing little Nemo, the clownfish, to a shark, you know, clownfish are going to lay 100,000 eggs. They're going to be able to reach sexual maturity quite young within the first year or two of life, at least. And then they will reproduce really, really often. They'll grow really fast. Okay, so then maybe that's possible for some species. But for a shark, as Carolyn mentioned earlier, they have these yeah. long generation times. Um, so then the case of adaptation, can enough generations go by fast enough to keep pace with the rate at which their environment is changing? And the answer is probably no in a lot of those cases for sharks because of this slow generation time. Then that second option would be move. Well, a lot of these species are quite tied to their habitat, quite connected to the reef flat or um, the kelp bed or, or whatever the case may be. So would there be available habitat under more favorable environmental conditions that would satisfy their needs, um, satisfy what they need to eat and nourish themselves and grow? Maybe not. Um, they would contract their populations. So as Carolyn mentioned, would we just see the epaulette shark, for example, start to move just to the more, more southern ends of the Great Barrier Reef? and only in those areas that are most favorable, or that third option die, which that's not the option we ever want to really think about, but would we see some of these populations just completely disappear altogether? I agree, you know, we definitely don't want, don't want the third option, definitely not. Um, but, but yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good way of putting it. And we, we, we've just talked about the, the epaulette shock, but I wonder, Jody, if you could tell us a little bit about what you found out um, with your kind of newborn and juvenile reef sharks as well in French Polynesia, are you finding similar things or, or are, are they um, responding differently? 
we are finding similar uh, results with the newborn reef sharks around French Polynesia. And we also think it's because they have to be able to cope with these conditions. Um, otherwise, they won't survive. Uh, if they don't cope with these conditions, they can't exploit these shallow protective habitats along the coastlines that keep them safe from large predators and perhaps provide a good nutrient base while they're growing in these early life stages. So the current conditions they're experiencing, they can cope with. But what we do know is if we are increasing, say, the temperatures just by a couple degrees beyond what they're currently experiencing, they can't cope with any additional stressors. So if we're holding them in the laboratory and feeding them, you know, a perfect 5% of their body mass every second day and they don't have any predators, they don't have to do any housework or laundry, you know, <laughs> perfect life, they're okay, but any additional stressor on top of that, yeah. um, even in the laboratory, if we were to simulate uh, a predator attack, uh, simulate them getting chased by a predator, add in ocean acidification conditions, any additional structure on top of those warm temperatures, and we start to get those mortality predictions really skyrocketing up to 80%. Right. So it's a, it's a very risky, um, risky area for us. We already know that they are on that edge, as Carolyn mm -hmm. mentioned. Right now, today, within their habitats, they're okay, but it's like a ticking time bomb. Yeah. Uh, we do a lot of the same investigations in terms of understanding their energy use under these different conditions. Um, you know, at the, the bare basics, an organism needs to be able to take up oxygen effectively from its environment, utilize that with food to produce energy so that it can swim and grow and eat and reproduce. Those are the bare basics for survival. And if it can't do that and can't do that effectively, that's when we start to see population decline. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not looking good. Um, and I think one of the worrying things for me is that a lot of people, when we talk about, you know, three or four degrees warming, they think they're like, oh, it'll take a, take us ages to get to that. Oh, that doesn't sound like that much. But it's it's really not that far away. We're kind of on that trajectory right now. Um, and, and one thing I kind of want to talk about just very quickly is um, I read a, an article that you wrote for The Conversation, Jodie, where you talk about um, experiencing the El Nino event and going, and going diving on the Great Barrier Reef after an El Nino event and the water temperature being, was it 33 degrees, you said? It was getting up there, yeah. Yeah, so 91.4 Fahrenheit for any American uh american listeners and and you said that the it still makes you feel nauseous to think about that so you know i'm sorry to sort of bring it up again but can can you can you tell us a little bit about that experience and then and, and what it was that you saw that's okay to bring it up again because it's still happening um yeah. that was february 2016 february 20th 2016 uh because i remember i'll never forget that feeling actually, because I had a team out on Lizard Island with me, which is in the northern part of the Great Barrier Reef. So we're getting a little bit closer to the equator, a little bit warmer conditions. And this is some of the most pristine part of the, the Great Barrier Reef as well. We have access to a really tremendous research station that's run by the Australian Museum up there. 
So we're able to not only do field experiments, but also laboratory experiments. And my colleague and I were in Lagoon that day, and we had already been doing heaps of projects to simulate different climate change scenarios. Also, some oil pollution scenarios as well. It's another area that other human-induced stressors that some of these organisms are experiencing, unfortunately. So we have all these experiments running, and we were sitting there in the lagoon, and we looked at our dive computers, and we thought, um, it's a low tide, very low tide at 2 p.m., and this water is getting really, really warm. These are the conditions that we are simulating in the laboratory to represent the end of the century, to represent the year 2100, and it's happening here right now. Yeah. And this, this wasn't supposed to happen yet. Like, wait, we're not ready. Um, we're still doing the experiments. And fast forward just two days after that, being in the water and watching the first signs of coral bleaching, which look a little weird, to be honest. Everything starts turning really fluorescent color, and then you start getting this weird goo in the water. Mm. So at a glance, it looks like all the corals look really, really, really bright, but they're like in the height of stress. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of days after that, that's when they go bare bone white. Mm -hmm. And that's when they lose that critical symbiotic relationship and start to die. And that's what we call coral bleaching. And that heat wave that was largely due to climate change, temperatures that are already too warm, uh, warmer than usual, was exacerbated by an El Nino year, which is a normal natural cycle, El Nino and La Nina. But what happens usually when we have an El Nino year is the water stays in place a little bit longer than usual. It's not getting a lot of those massive currents and storms that would push the water around and mixed up quite a bit more. So the water was staying around a little bit longer than usual. We were also having a daytime low tide in the summertime. And because of climate change, temperatures were warmer than they ever have been. Mm. So that's with less than a degree of warming on the Great Barrier Reef. That happened in 2016. It happened again the following year. It happened again in 2020. So it's happened three times in the past five years. And today, 98% of the Great Barrier Reef, which is 2,300 kilometers stretch along the east coast of Australia that you can see from space, 98% of the Great Barrier Reef has bleached. That means only 2% of that entire ecosystem has not undergone climate change-induced bleaching. So yes, that is a situation where I'm thinking, here I am tasked as my career to understand how marine organisms, coral reef organisms, the fishes, including the sharks, including the rays, are coping with climate change stressors. And it's happening now. <laughs> Jump yeah. in. Um, we weren't ready, really. We, we still have so many more experiments to do. So nauseated, nauseous, um, sobering experience, uh, alarming, you know, like turning on all of those stress signals in my own body um, mm -hmm. because it's happening so fast and it's happening right before our eyes. Yeah, yes. 
utterly terrifying and devastating as well to like experience that in real time and I mean that's the important message that you know a lot of scientists try to get across is you know it's not something that's going to happen decades in the future it's happening right now right this very second you know we need to do something need to do something now um but you know with that very sober and thought in mind um you know it we still have the opportunity to slow that down a little bit and have have an impact and so for someone sitting at home who is now feeling the same as us, who's feeling very nauseated and, and you know, very, very worried and feeling a bit overwhelmed and thinking, you know, what on earth can I do to make a difference? You know, what what would you say to those listeners? What what can we do as individuals? Carolyn? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's tough. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's this problem in, in climate science of climate scientists having, you know, depression because we spend all of our, you know, working hours thinking about it. So it's very tough. I mean, I think the biggest thing you can do is just the way that you vote and lobbying your representatives, you know, constantly. It's, I mean, it's all comes from the top, right? Like we have the technologies to make the changes that we need to make. It's just mm -hmm. not happening, you know? So I think that's probably the biggest thing you can do. Yeah. Use your voice use your voice and fight for the people that are going to be in power that are going to hopefully make decisions to the right decisions to reverse climate change um and also if you can share pictures of the epaulette shark because they are ridiculously cute um and if they're in trouble you know i can't i can't imagine anybody sort of turning that down so so yeah well, well that's that's absolutely what we've been trying to do here on the great barrier reef is um you know, kind of use the epaulette shark as, as sort of a new icon of the Great Barrier Reef. Sorry, Nemo. Sorry, Nemo. But we we have one of our amazing female epaulette sharks that came from Magnetic Island, which is just right off the coast of where we're based here in Townsville. And um, her name is Carolyn. Edna. Edna. <laughs> Edna. Yes. Edna. Edna, she's wonderful. She is our emissions educator. And so we really are, you know, definitely um, supercharging that aspect with education and outreach. Um, everyone, everyone around here knows Edna. And if we can utilize, you know, not only the science, but also just the beauty and the quirkiness and the awesomeness of this particular species to help raise a bit more awareness as to the importance of reducing our emissions, um, not only here in Australia, but globally. Um, a, clean, a clean economic recovery is win-win on a global scale. And you know, not just here in Australia, where we definitely need to you know, communicate to the rest of the world that we hold the Great Barrier Reef and other natural spaces with high regard, but the rest of the world as well. It does definitely and that's such a that's such a good note to sort of bring us to a close because you know yes climate change is on our doorsteps and yes we need to treat it as something very serious and something that is happening now rather than in a couple of decades like we've talked about and it's going to have quite serious ramifications or very serious ramifications for our 
our shark species to sort of answer the question of this episode. But at the same time, there is hope and there, there are things that we can do uh, right now to make a real positive change. And I think that's that's such a that's such a good note to to end this episode on. Well, you're both doing such fantastic work and there are so many different facets to what you're doing. So you're doing the research and you're also doing the science communication and the working with local communities. And it's been so incredibly fascinating to to find out more about it. Even, you know, over an hour, I could honestly like keep you both all day and chat to you all day, um, but I won't. Um, but I just have one final question. And that is, if you could be any species of shark or ray in the world, what would you be and why? So, Carolyn, I'll come to you first. Okay, so I did actually think about this a bit because I think this is also a hard question. But <laughs> after being at Heron Island last month, there is a very large number of cowtail rays, whiptail rays, shovel nose rays. There's tons of them there. and they honestly, I think, have such a good life. They live in a very protected green zone of the Great Barrier Reef. They kind of lay out all day and sleep under the jetty. I think that I would like to be a ray at Heron Island because they just, they seem to be having a really good time down there. Yeah. I ideal. Very chill. I'm, yeah. And yeah. perfect post PhD as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They just, they're always just having an afternoon nap and I think it looks good. Yeah. That sounds like a good life. <laughs> Jody, how about you oh that's such a tough question it's a raised life I love that answer Carolyn uh, <laughs> I just I love our epaulette sharks so much and I find them so quirky and I they've inspired me for so long now I would love to be an epaulette shark because then I would know all of the answers that we're trying to 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 answer uh, all of the questions and answers that we're trying to answer these days. Um, I love how they hide. I love how they move. I just love how bizarre they are and how tough they are, despite not looking like a sharky shark. Uh, we always say that they're less bitey than other sharks, but not lately. <laughs> they can be a little bitey as well. Um, I mean, that's, that's fair enough. <laughs> we've both been bitten. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's fair enough. They've got quite a lot to deal with at the moment by the sounds of it. So. Right, right. But uh, just to get into their little heads and find out, why do you do that? So, yeah, yeah. epaulette shark. Mm -hmm. That would be cool. I was going to say it would be a bit weird if neither of you chose epaulette shark at the end. But <laughs> it's true. Yeah. yeah. And also, I do spend a lot of time. I do spend a lot Carolyn's of time. Carolyn's choice might be based out. on the state of the state of I your career right now <laughs> exactly yeah. 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 <laughs> fully fully understandable um but also just to close a note i would absolutely love to see a film on edna the epaulette shark a disney film i think i think that should be i think that should definitely happen disney get on are it. we putting that out there into into the ethers um disney disney plus netflix Nat Geo, Edna is waiting for her photo shoot. She's yeah, waiting. I am putting that out into the universe. I am manifesting that. So watch this space. 
Edna. But, <laughs> but honestly, it's been so lovely to talk to both of you. And thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And just like that, we have come to the end of season one of The Whole Tooth. A huge thank you to all of you at home for listening for your questions for your lovely reviews we really appreciate it all um, and of course a huge thank you as well to our amazing guests who've been on over the last few months i really do feel like i have the best job in the world getting to talk about sharks and the oceans with some of the best in the business And of course, we will be back in 2022. I cannot wait. I already have some very exciting guests lined up, but there is still time for you to get your questions to us to be answered by experts on the podcast. So if you'd like to get in touch with your question, you can email Isla at saveourseas.com or through social media by following at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram and at Save Our Seas on Twitter. All right, guys, have a jawsome holiday season and we will see you in the new year.